If you're new here this morning, we welcome you. Uh, my name is Tony, and I'm pastor here at All EFC. And uh, quite frankly, I'm about downright giddy right now to open the Word of God with you. Because it is a joy to hear the Word of God read by all of you, which just pumps me up for what we get to do. Because we're not done. Uh, we still get to go. So I'm going to ask you to turn your Bibles to Exodus chapter 20. We're going to continue with our series now. Today's the 10th and final commandment uh, that we're teaching through um, in this series called Written in Stone, Written on the Heart. But the series doesn't end until uh, next week uh, when Lem uh, will be sharing from the passage when Jesus says, I didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And so we're going to look at like, so how do we put into context that which was written uh, pre the cross and, and apply it to now after Jesus has come, what's the role of the law in our lives and how does that apply? And, and we've said many times, we wouldn't even know we're in need of a savior if it wasn't for the law. The law tells us that we're not holy like God is holy. And the law tells us that we're guilty of, of, of sin. And if you, do, if you take the law out of it, you would just assume, our natural tendency would assume we're all good. We're all fine. And it doesn't point very well then without the law. Our, our nature would always point us as innocent. And so this is helpful for us to understand the root of God's uh, nature and his character, and the root of our nature and our character. So today we're going to read uh, Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 to 17, and, uh, and then we'll continue on into some other texts as well. So here we go. Verse 1, and God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you, nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them. But he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and mother so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male or female servant, his ox or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. So, as we've gone through all the commandments, this one is a little bit different than all the others. The other ones are very external. You can see the evidence of them externally. <coughs> you know that God is God. 
That's an external acknowledgement. You can hear when his name is being misused. You can see when there is actually idols being made in replacement of him. You can see whether or not a Sabbath is being kept in somebody else's life or in your own. The honoring of parents, again, evidential. Murder, stealing, lying, all evidential. Coveting can be hidden. It's a matter of the heart. In fact, you can root all of the other issues that are listed in the Ten Commandments to the core issue of coveting. Wanting that which is not yours. Let me give an illustration as to why God may kind of choose after he's written all these other commandments that he takes one at the end, places it there as it would be the basic core to everything else. It's kind of the catch-all. As if he ran out of stone that he could write on and it's like, I've got to write something now. Only have space for one more. They can capture a lot. So let me share a little bit about the largest living organism in the world. Now, I have a little bit of a fascination with the trees of Pennsylvania. We have a cabin up in Tioga County. We enjoy it. It's beautiful up there. And my favorite tree that we have on our property up there is the birch tree. Uh, I love the white bark that it has on it. I love the leaves. I like the shape of the, the, the straightness of the trees as they go up. And they remind me of my experience of growing up in western Kansas where we would go and travel to Colorado and we would see the aspen tree. Now, I love trees <coughs> because where I grew up, there wasn't a whole lot of them. And so I grew to really appreciate them. So when we go to Colorado and we'd see these big forests filled with these white bark trees called aspens, I fell in love with them. And I love them to this day. And so when I was looking at the birch uh, a couple months ago uh, up in Tioga County, I, wonder, I began to wonder, I wonder, is the aspen and the birch tree related? So I look up aspen trees and discover something that I had never known before, but that the largest living organism in the world and the heaviest living organism in the world is a 106-acre forest of aspen trees in Utah called Pando, which means I spread. And basically, in this forest of 106 acres, there are 40,000 aspen trees there. But all of those trees are actually from one tree. It's all part of the root system of one. So as the roots of one tree spread out, a, a sprout coming out of its root would create another tree. So all 40,000 of those trees are actually from one root system, making it the largest, again, living organism in the world and the heaviest, 13 million pounds of one organism. Now, what I love about this particular situation is, okay, they are able to prove by DNA that this is all one tree, all these trees, and, uh, and you think that it's like, wow, look at how one tree from off of its roots can create many others. So I was very fascinated by that a couple months ago when I discovered this. And then when I was preparing this sermon, my mind went back to the Pando forest. Because in this commandment, this 10th and final one, we discover a commandment that addresses the root of many variants of sins. 
Now, some of you may not realize the term variant actually existed before 2020. All right? So in your mind, you're immediately thinking alpha, beta, delta, then we have Omicron and so on. But uh, no, literally there are, the use of the term variant was to apply. It's like, so one primary source, but there are variants of it. The 10th commandment, coveting, is a var- that leads to a variant of many different sins of wanting of that which is not yours. In fact, as I said earlier, I would make the case that this 10th commandment can be the root to the sins that can be applied from the first nine commandments. So think about this. The first commandment, which is there is only one God, right? And we're to worship him as the only God. He is God. And we're not to make gods like him to worship another. And we're to establish his name as the only one true God. When Adam and Eve sinned, what was the root of their sin? Think about it. When Satan came to them and he was tempting them, what did he bait their heart and mind to lean towards? Well, God doesn't want you to eat of that tree because then you will become like him, right? That you will begin to know what he knows. And he doesn't want you to know what he knows. He doesn't want you to be like him because then you'd be on par with him. All right, so Satan puts that, that thought out there. Adam and Eve receive it. They look at the apple. They fix their eyes on it. They delight in how good it looks. They hear this word that it's like, well, you know, God doesn't want you becoming like them. In their mind, what does, what does their mind say? They're like, well, I'd kind of like to know what God knows. I want to be like God. And so we don't know how long the pondering was, But eventually, what happened? They ate. They took that which was not theirs and consumed it. All because the one thing they didn't have was to be God. They communed with God. They interacted with God. They had access to God like no other human beings on the face of the earth will ever have. An untainted earth. But the one thing they didn't have was to be him. So Satan, in many ways, was using a truth, but he used it in such a way to leverage against their covetousness in their heart. And so this 10th commandment addresses the root of such a sin, that it can cause us to want that which is not ours. And the the very form of sin, the very beginning and birth of sin, rooted from out of this violation of commandment. Even the golden calf moment with the nation of Israel carried with it a violation of covetousness. They had just experienced going through all those 10 curses upon Egypt, saw how God dealt roughly with Egypt, then saw God destroy the armies of Egypt when they tried to cross the Red Sea. They too got to escape across that Red Sea, seeing all the miracles of that. Then they get to the other side And then Moses needs to go have a meeting with God. And Moses took a little bit too much time. So they created an idol, a golden calf, taking all their jewelry of gold that they collected from Egypt, melted it, and formed it into that of a golden calf, and then praised it rather than God. Now, how does coveting come into that? 
Was that golden calf there when all those plagues were coming upon Egypt? No. Was the golden calf leading the nation of Israel across that sea? No. Was the golden calf looking as the sea closed in? No, no. In fact, they knew exactly when it was created. They created with their own possessions. So where's coveting in that? Think about it. If they don't create the golden calf, who do they have to credit for their well-being? God. If they have no golden calf, who do they have to look, for, look to for protecting them? God. And if there is no golden calf, who do they have to acknowledge as having control? God. By creating a golden calf made from their own possessions and made by their own hands, who is the one being credited? Themselves. Who's the one in control? Themselves. They were taking for themselves that which was God. That's why God puts us that commandment saying, you shall not make an image that would be credited as God because you would be taking something and putting it under your control and therefore not submitting to God. You can go through and look at all of the other things. The Sabbath day. Why is the Sabbath day you know, considered something lost in our culture? It's because we've decided God had a great idea. Stop working on one of your days of the week but that day was meant to be a day of rest and a day of acknowledgement and communing with God. What did people do? They rest and they play. They quit making it a day of mindfulness between them and God. They took for themselves that which was not supposed to be all theirs. It was a gift from God to be enjoyed with God. Then you look at honoring of parents and you look at that which of, of taking from your neighbor or to tell, uh, steal the reputation of another. All of it is to take for yourself at the cost of another. So just like the Pando forest, coveting begins as a single seed. I want that which I do not have. But it spreads into other forms of sin but it all comes from a single root. But how does that begin? How does coveting become a center place of your heart? How does it spread from one seed, one part of you, and become many forms of sin? Well, I want us to turn in our Bibles to Matthew 6. We've spent a decent amount of time in Matthew 6 this summer, as that's the chapter where Jesus is explaining the meaning of the law to people because they were not honoring it as he intended. So Matthew chapter 6. And just two weeks ago, Nick was sharing from when talking about the commandment of do not steal. We, he was looking at the, the reason why stealing gets a hold of our heart. Where we would become someone who would be willing to steal. Is that we begin to have treasures that are misplaced. Our eyes take on valuing things that are around us to a fault, to where we want to have more of it. So here's verse 19, where it says, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, or moths and vermin destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But store up your, your, for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moths and vermin cannot destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be. 
So the point is, is that if your mind is totally driven to the possessions of the earth, it's going to show up in your value system because everything you do is for the sake of attaining those worldly possessions. And what Jesus says here is, you can truly know where somebody's heart is at by the things they consider as treasure. So if we were to evaluate each of our lives here in this room as to where your heart is at, we would look at how you spend your time, what are you pursuing, what is your mind consumed with, and if it's all things of attainment of things here on this earth, then we know where your heart's at because your values will be lived out from out of the overflow of your heart. Jesus, after teaching this, tells you, though, where this begins. Because that's the question I want to get into. How does coveting actually become a single-rooted system that roots into other things and morphs into other variants of sin? So here, let's look at what Jesus says is the starting point. Verse 22. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be filled with light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is dark, how great is that darkness? Hmm. So the gate to your heart is what Jesus is saying, begins with your eyes. Your eyes become the entry point by which other things begin to grow. When your eyes fix on something and it stays there, you begin to delight in it. And so your mind becomes consumed with the delighting of whatever your eyes are fixated on. And then once your mind is beginning to delight on it, then it will begin to affect your heart. Because your heart will begin to long for that which your eyes have set upon and what your mind is delighting upon. So then you've got this issue going on. If I look, and I continue to look, and with the, while looking, i delighting in it, and I'm desiring it, and coveting it, and I keep doing that repetitively, my heart will say, I must have. That's now become my value. I value that, and I want it. There are signs that you might have a problem. If I desire something in my life, let's say it's something that would cost me money, I don't usually impulsively go out and buy it. No, I usually look up on, on Google that item. I see what the prices are. I check it out over some time. And then once I kind of get a sense of what it's gonna cost me and what a good deal is, then I know that I can go buy it or where to buy it. So typically, no harm, no foul. But when, it, when that website that you're looking at or with values is like realtor.com or car gurus, the cost of what you're looking at is pretty significant. And I know that when, you know, my wife and I about a year ago, we were talking about whether or not it was time to get a new uh, vehicle or not. And, uh, and so we kind of resolved it's not now. But over the next 12 months, I'm on car gurus regularly. And she would come over, what are you looking at? And then I'd be like, uh, oh, we're not gonna get a vehicle right now. And I'm like, I oh, know, I'm just looking. 
Some of you are feeling that. I'm just looking. The problem is the more you look, the more you look, the more you look, the more you want. And the lack of ability to be able to say no is starting to happen. And then you desire to have, and you have now. And so the same thing is applied. Now, it's not necessarily a bad thing to get a new vehicle. It's not necessarily a bad thing to want a new house. The problem is, is that if that is your primary value and you're consumed by it, there's a problem. Because it will steal from other parts. Your mind can only be consumed with so many things. So what is it consumed with? And so what we see here is that Jesus is saying, listen, wherever your treasure is, there is where your heart's gonna be. So whatever you're trying to collect for yourself, whatever you're trying to attain for yourself, that is going to be evidence of what your heart truly wants in life. It's kind of a scary thing because it tells everybody else what your values are. Job understood this. Job was a man that lived uh, quite a long time ago, prior, prior to Christ by several centuries. And, and there's a, a story of, of how some things went really wrong in his life uh, over a season of time. He lost all of his children to uh, a, an accident, and then he lost uh, all of his possessions to stealing. It was a very bad day. <laughs> then he had his wife turn on him. He had his friends turn on him. Things were not going well. When you have that many things going wrong, a litany of things going wrong, the natural inclination of a human being would be, God, what did I do to tick you off? True? God, what did I do to make you angry? Job had that question. And I want us to look at Job chapter 31. So if you could turn back, it's in the middle of your Bibles. It's right before Psalms. Job 31, I'm gonna read the first eight verses and I want you to hear as we're reading it how this reflects what Jesus was talking about. Our, our treasure consuming our hearts, our eyes being a gateway to moving our hearts in the wrong direction. Uh, look at how Job acknowledges this journey. So Job is under duress. He's talking out loud, kind of frustrated with what God may be angry with him and so he's doing a lot of self-evaluation and here's what comes out of him during that self-evaluation. It says, I made a covenant with my eyes not to look lustfully at a young woman. For what is our lot from God above, our heritage from the Almighty on high? Is it not ruin for the wicked, disaster for those who do wrong? Does he not see my ways and count my every steps? If I have walked with falsehood or my foot has hurried after deceit, let God weigh me in honest scales, and he will know that I am blameless. If my steps have turned from the path, if my heart has been led by my eyes, or if my hands have been defiled, then may others eat what I have sown, and may my crops be uprooted. Job was a farmer, had a lot of farmland, so his means of income was from his crops. And he basically says to God, if anything I have done has been the cause of my disaster that's come upon me, then let my crops be taken by another. Let them experience the fruit of my labors. But the key phrase in this, is there anything that my eyes 
have misled my heart towards. Anything. He starts with, I make a covenant with my eyes towards not looking at a young woman lustfully. Okay, that's a natural thing for a man to, to say. It's like, yeah, that's a common sin. But he goes down further and just says, listen, if there's anything that my eyes have caused my heart to move towards something other than God, to any kind of sinful deceit, any kind of desire or wanting or coveting, then may the judgment be full and swift. So ultimately, what Jesus is saying is true. We can know where your value truly lies by what you're attaining, what you're pursuing, what's consuming you as to what you have. And it's gonna often start with the eyes, looking upon something saying, I want it. And then our minds delighting in it. And then our hearts become consumed with it. I want us to turn also to 1 Timothy chapter six. Again, towards the end of our Bibles now, in 1 Timothy chapter six. Because I wanna talk about the opposite. So like anything else, we can look at the 10 commandments and say, we're not to use the name of the Lord in vain. So therefore, we use his name in glory to him. We're not to steal from someone, so what should we do? We should give to someone. We shouldn't dishonor our parents, we should honor our parents. You get the point. There's always a counterbalance to the sin issue. And the counter to the sin issue of coveting is contentment. Look at what it says in verse 6 of 1 Timothy 6. It says, but godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we'll be content with that. But those who want to get rich, in other words, wanting more, never being satisfied, they will fall into temptation and a trap and, to, and into what? Many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. So in other words, you could restate that verse in verse nine. It says, those who want to covet after the things of this world, an unbridled covetousness, will fall into temptation and a trap into many foolish and harmful desires, many variants of sins that will plunge them into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the truth, from the faith, and have pierced themselves with many griefs. So godliness, as it says, is, with, is great at gain when there is contentment involved. So you can pursue godliness but not be content and you will not get to experience godliness to the full. So godliness thrives best from a contented heart. So godliness thrives with a content heart. Now I wanna poke at something here. When we hear the word contentment, most of the time, as Americans, what we hear in that is just stop and go no further. That's the natural inclination of how we hear that term, contentment. Stop and go no further. Just, you don't need anything else, don't get any more, just stop there. But I wanna highlight 
that's not even what it says here about contentment. It says, but godliness with contentment is great gain. So it suggests that with contentment, there's still forward motion. It's not a, oh, contentment, so status quo. I just stay where I'm at, be pleased with however thing is, even though there's things that I could do to my house and whatever, I'm just gonna stay as it is. No, it, it's not about that. It says, godliness with contentment is great gain. So there's something about contentment that leads to a greater godliness and fulfillment and experience of that godliness. And you see how it's highlighted, what that means is that for the person, again, this highlights what Jesus was saying, for the person who is constantly caught in the trap of having more, you will lose out on the fulfillment and joy that there's found in walking with God. So the person who walks with God with a contented heart will find that, yes, they can, can, they can have many things, but that's not where they find their values. That's not where their mind is constantly stirring. No, the person whose mind is constantly stirring towards God is gonna think of more eternal things, more things that are gonna provide joy and fulfillment versus what the world's value system is when we're trying to attain it is an insatiable pursuit, our cars that we buy, we'll get rid of or get tired of them quickly. The homes that we buy age and we'll get tired of them quickly. And boy, don't get me started about the size of our closets. I mean, I just came back from South Africa where we walked into homes that were about the size of my walk-in closet. And yet everything that they had, the possessions that they had for a family of six to eight people were all in that size of space. You start thinking and reevaluating, have I spent too much time always needing more? We met as a team, for those of us that went to South Africa, met as a team a week later. And one of the questions that was asked was, what have you kind of, grab that you'll take forward for the rest of your life from your experience in South Africa. And several of the students and leaders that were there commented about being content and grateful for the things that they have. Because what we saw in South Africa was that they could always find purpose for everything that they had. A piece of paper that might have some writing on it is still a piece of paper with space. Things that we've used for other things can be repurposed for, for new things. There was always value. People found, like some of our team was like, I'm never sure what I can throw away because they value everything that we would get rid of very quickly. But it was stunning to see how contentment and joy were not something that they were struggling with. Now, there was envy. They envied how much we had but when you start realizing how much time we put to having possessions in our own bedrooms, and it's more than five and six times the value of their entire home, it starts putting into perspective, maybe we've spent way a little bit too much time in attainment and not just simply enjoying what we've received. You see, the world 
and its value system and what it, you know, again, it's fine to have cars and homes and clothes. I mean, I'm wearing clothes that are fairly new right now. But when it's the drive of your heart and your life, there's a problem. And when you can't have enough, or your margins are so small because of your insatiable lifestyle, when you don't have the money to even tithe or be generous to someone because you've locked up all your funds for your own self, we've got a problem. Jesus gives us a warning in Matthew 6. I didn't read this verse, but I want to highlight it now. It's verse 24, which just comes after. So we have the treasures of your heart. You cannot serve two treasures. You're gonna, your treasures are going to dictate where you're going to give yourself in your heart. And then, God, and then Jesus says, and your eyes are going to dictate where you place your treasure. But he ends that whole context with verse 24 when he says this. No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. You cannot serve two. Jesus said this in Matthew 12, that a kingdom divided can't stand. You've got to choose who your kingdom is. Who's your king? You and all your possessions or Jesus and all his purposes. A divided heart will be a slow death of a vibrant faith. A divided heart where you're trying to hold on to all the things you can attain to. Keep in mind what, Timothy, what was said to Timothy. You brought nothing into this world and you're gonna take nothing from it. So if all your life is about attainment on this world, you have wasted your life. A divided heart will be the slow death of a vibrant faith. Timothy, that passage in Timothy concludes with verse 10. says, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for the money have wandered from the faith and have pierced themselves with many griefs. A lot of counseling is being done today because a lot of possessions and a lot of things have been threatened in our lives. It was fascinating when they were talking about doing surveys during the quarantining season of the pandemic. They found that there was only one constituent in all of America that had a somewhat healthy uh, mind, uh, mental health, and that was those that still attended church throughout 2020. It was the one group of people that had seemingly stable mental health. You see, I think they found their peace somewhere else other than the things that were being lost here on this earth. Again, what Paul says to Timothy is many will even walk away from the faith. They'll abandon the faith for the sake of gaining for themselves. And they'll be filled with all kinds of griefs. So if this has provoked your heart and considering and looking at like how you have valued things in your life, where your treasures might be, where your coveting issues might be lying. How do we protect ourselves from this sin that seems to have such a powerful root that can come and become so many other types of sins? Well, the first thing that I think is the primary antidote to the issue of coveting 
is gratefulness. It's gratefulness. If, we, if it's true that what we set our, mind, our eyes on, our minds will delight in. And if we're delighting in our minds, then our hearts will be given towards it. So if our eyes are looking at, look at what God has given me. And I say, thank you. And you show gratitude towards God in it. And your mind is mindful of gratitude and being grateful before God. Do you not think that that will begin to turn the heart back towards God and have a different perspective on what you value in life? I'm sorry, that deserved an amen. I'm telling you, if we just became grateful people, that very issue would keep us from a multitude of sins. Number two, when there are things already happening inside of you and you know there's already a root system of covetousness in your life, you need to identify what makes your eyes wander and remove its space from your heart. You need to cut off the root. You have to cut the root, but you have to identify the root. So what is it that's caused your eye to delight in something other than God and has moved your heart maybe away from the things God values? You need to identify the issue, bring it to light before God and before somebody else who's pursuing God. Because we're told in the book of James that when we confess our sins to one another, we find healing in that. We are also called to confess before God so we find forgiveness from that. And we must then, by identifying it, starve it by replacing it with gratefulness. We want to starve the root, cut it off. And lastly, we need to put our eyes somewhere else and we're told to fix our eyes upon Jesus. The best way I know to guide you guys on, on how to fix your eyes on Jesus is to study his life, become a master of his tendencies, become a master of his behaviors, become a master of all that he's taught substantively, and begin to emulate him. Spend time with him, taking a true Sabbath, and then journeying closely with others. That's why we encourage life groups and, and so that you can get more intimate with a group of people to be able to connect with that they can spur you towards loving Jesus all the more. When you commune with others who are also pursuing Jesus, it inspires you. I'll conclude with this verse. It's Hebrews chapter 12, verses one and two. It says, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. So we're gonna get rid of that. We're gonna cut the root of that off. And then let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus was given many opportunities to look to the left or to the right, but he kept his eyes looking forward saying, I am going to go to that cross sinless. I'm going to die on that cross sinless, and I'm going to come from that grave 
victorious so that all of us can find deliverance from our sinful natures by faith in his work. Amen? Let's pray. So Father God, I just say thank you for your word, your timeless word. From Genesis to Revelation, it's been read today, both in Genesis and Revelation and in between, that you are a holy God and that you desire us to find life and life to the full and that you're exposing that the world's lie of that we can pursue those things for ourselves and that there will be final fulfillment in that. It's such a lie. We know that we can experience all the possessions of this world when they're placed in proper value and we honor you as the primary thrust because then we can use those possessions to your glory. So God, forgive us for our insatiable hearts for pursuing that which is not ours and for being indulgent for the sake of self-satisfaction. Turn our hearts back towards you and turn our eyes to your son, Jesus. I pray this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. Would you stand, please? How can we not sing, turn your eyes upon Jesus? Sing with me. Turn your eyes upon
Cristo. So after the Ten Commandments had been read before the people, there was a response that I would fully expect. It says in verse 18, that when the people saw the thunder and the lightning and heard the trumpet and saw the mountain and smoke, they trembled with fear. They stayed at a distance and said to Moses, speak to us yourself and we'll listen. But do not have God speak to us or we'll die. Moses said to the people, do not be afraid. God has come to test you so that the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. You see, I think that's the whole point right there wrapped in the, in the Ten Commandments is that, yes, there is a need to fear God for his holiness, his justice, his righteousness. But no, we do not need to fear coming to him. We, it's in the same way that we don't fear coming to our parents, but we need to come to our parents. We fear their discipline. So too, we fear God's discipline. We fear his holiness. We fear that fact that he is fully righteous and just, and we're not. But we're called to draw near him. Moses wasn't the one to speak. God wanted to speak to them directly so too he desires to do now. This is an opportunity to draw near to him so that we can have the proper fear of his role in our life so that we don't have to continue to live a sinful lifestyle. In the book of 1 John, we're committed and charged by John to not continue to sin, but when we do, to confess it, to confess it, and he will forgive us. But it's by his power and grace that we're even able to continue forward and to continue to live powerfully against the roots of many sins that can come into our lives. This is only possible by the Spirit of God living in you. And God says the Spirit of God lives in you when you have faith in the work of Jesus Christ. So if you came into this room today and you do not have a faith, a relationship with Jesus Christ, He bids you to come to Him. He invites you to by faith acknowledge that he is holy and just and that you are not in need of his work and that the work of Jesus is sufficient and that by receiving that work and believing in that work, making Jesus Lord of your life, he says, then I give you the Holy Spirit who will then empower you to live a life that the law could not help you live. The law only points, but the Spirit who wrote the law gives us the power to live it out by grace and mercy. If you'd like to talk with someone or pray with someone, we'll have people in the encounter room that's to my left. They'd be glad to do so. I will also be up front. We'd be glad to meet with you as well. But for all of us who do know Jesus, I encourage you to make sure that the root doesn't have its place. Starve it when there's a root of covetousness and let gratefulness come in. And you'll see your countenance change. You'll see your value systems change. Amen? 
go as grateful people this day. You're dismissed.